0: This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them, one from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams from Southern California.
2: And this is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. I write a blog called Law Sites and another one called Media Law, both of which are available at LegalLine.com.
1: And I write a blog called May It Please the Court, and it's available at MayItPleaseTheCourt.com. In this edition of Coast to Coast, we're focusing on a trial that is making headlines around the world, and it's taking place in the newly formed democracy of Iraq.
2: We're talking about the trial of former Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein uh, and uh, if you've been following it all, it's nothing like we've, we're used to seeing in the United States. Uh, Iraq has a new constitution, new government, new laws, and, and new judges, and uh, the list of what's new in the government goes on and on.
1: Well, Bob, let's cover a little bit of background first. Uh, in March 2003, the U.S.-led coalition forces began airstrikes against Iraq. Saddam Hussein went into hiding, and then in December of 2003, U.S. forces found Hussein hidden in a tiny underground bunker near his hometown of Tikrit.
2: And the following July, Saddam and seven uh, other co-defendants were arraigned. They uh, have been charged with crimes against humanity for the killing of 148 Shiites after an assassination attempt on Saddam back in 1982. Uh, They've pled not guilty, and the trial officially got underway in October 2005.
1: Well, Saddam and his co-defendants could face death by hanging if convicted. Uh, The past four months have been pretty chaotic. trial's seen three different judges, assassinations, postponements, outbursts, walkouts, no-shows, and it's resumed this week after another uh, postponement. Once again, it was very eventful when it did resume, and Saddam was very vocal.
0: Down with the agents, down with Bush Long live the Arab nation, long live the Arab nation Long live Iraq, long live the people of Iraq Shame and disgrace on you, Rauf
3: Shame
0: and disgrace on you, Rauf Shame and disgrace on you, Rauf
1: well, now Saddam has announced he's on a hunger strike. Once again, it postpones until February 28th. Our guest today, following this trial very closely, has some great insight. Simone Manashevian is the chief of the New York United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime in New York. Ms. Manashevian has extensive experience in prosecuting and defending accused war criminals. She's also Court TV's legal analyst for the trial of Saddam Hussein. Welcome, Simone. Thank you. I hope I've got your name pronounced correctly. That's fine. Well, let's try to explain what's going on. It's just a very different environment than we've been accustomed to in the U.S. justice system. How How is this court set up? Is it being handled through a jury, a panel of judges? Who's prosecuting Saddam?
3: Well, it's a quasi-international tribunal. It is based in Iraq, and it follows Iraqi law, but also the laws of the international criminal tribunals that emanated from the legacy of Nuremberg. And so we have five judges who are trained in the civil law system, which is more an inquisitorial system than an adversarial system, and they will determine the fate of Saddam Hussein and the seven other accused by a majority decision.
1: Okay. So who's descending Saddam?
3: Well, Saddam Hussein has been defended by several people, some of which he has fired, others of which have uh, boycotted the proceedings, storming out in protest, and he is currently uh, somewhat defending himself by default, although the rules of the court make it clear that that really should not be the case, but also has what is called court-appointed counsel, um, counsel which he does not uh, choose or support or, or seek, but has been provided to him in the interests of justice because his counsel have withdrawn from the court.
1: Well, procedurally speaking, then, who decides on the verdict?
3: The judges will, by majority opinion. And unlike Nuremberg, where there was no appeal allowed, there will be an appeal heard by nine judges.
2: This, Simona, this is Bob Ambrogi. I'm wondering, uh, from, from news reports uh, this week, uh, you almost get the sense that, that uh, the atmosphere is is pretty chaotic in the courtroom. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what's been going on and, and comment on, on what you think is is happening there in the courtroom.
3: Well, it's certainly unfortunate that we see such type of uh, court proceedings. This was supposed to be a model for the new Iraq, and we hoped a harbinger of good to come and and not of more chaos, a a restoration of the rule of law rather than dissension into uh, atmosphere that's often characterized as farcical. But uh, on the other hand, even in the war crimes tribunal created by the UN Security Council resolutions for the former Yugoslavia and for the Rwandan uh, court, you've seen these kind of antics by accused before, and somehow the larger their alleged culpability is, be they dictators, heads of state they become even more contumacious in court. And this really stems from the fact that, unlike national courts, where the accused are contesting the legitimacy of the charges, in these types of trial, the accused are contesting the legitimacy of the existence of the court altogether. And so there is a contempt for the court. And you see that in the behavior of the accused. And you see it more so, where the judges have been lenient in the beginning and the accused have not been disciplined early on. And then when you have a new judge coming in, as we see now on the 13th day of the trial, um, it's a little bit late in the game to restore some kind of semblance of order in what has been a very chaotic court for 13
2: days. So what is the impact of that on on the public perception of this trial, both within Iraq and, and elsewhere in the world?
3: Well, it's hoped by Saddam Hussein that the impact will be that people will have less belief in this court, believe it's a farce, believe it's unfair, and that you know that will inure to his benefit. But as to the judges who are sitting there, in Saddam Hussein's mind, he has nothing to gain by showing respect to them because he believes that he will be convicted by them no matter what he does if that court is allowed to continue. So he sees nothing to be gained by behaving in, in a respectful manner in that court but you know some of the public is quite outraged the victims of um genocide crimes against humanity and war crimes over you know several decades of the regime of Saddam Hussein are quite troubled by this and when judge Rizgar Amin the first presiding judge of the five who are uh, you know looking at this case and will determine the verdict uh, resigned he he cited as his reason for resignation the fact that undue influence was put upon him. And so certainly there were people either in the government or in the public who were very troubled by these outbursts and the lack of control in the courtroom, and the reaction by the public or the government in that case was to put pressure on a judge who ultimately resigned.
1: Is it really possible to control Saddam at this point, or uh, is that really going to interfere with him getting a fair trial?
3: Whether it's impossible or not to control the accused is not the issue. The issue is, is it possible to control the courtroom? And yes, it is possible to control the courtroom. And oftentimes that may mean um, telling the accused that if he continues, his microphone will be shut off, as was the case in the Milosevic trial, or that even if the microphone is shut off and he's yelling, and, and causing disturbances in the courtroom and has been warned not to do it anymore, that he will be removed from the courtroom, and the trial will continue nevertheless. And in a case that I prosecuted in the war, in the Rwandan War Crimes Tribunal, along with cases that others have prosecuted since, there have been instances where accused have not come to court. I think mine was the first case in the in the Baragwiza case in the Rwandan Tribunal. Uh, he chose not to come to court from the first day until the verdict came, and for 241 days we tried an empty chair along with his two co-defendants who did attend, and he was sentenced nevertheless. And international law allows an accused to exit himself in the proceedings either by choice or by force if he is perpetually disruptive. And, and that's also consistent with the United States law and national law, which provide for the same thing. Here, interestingly enough, the Iraqi court has a provision, unlike the United States or some of the international courts, that says that the judges may force the accused to come into court. And we saw that happen in the past in the Eichmann trial in Israel, where Eichmann was essentially put in a glass box so that he couldn't disrupt. Um, and it, and mean, we saw
2: that this week when Saddam's half-brother was, was brought in in his, in his pajamas, essentially, I guess, right? Is that right?
3: Yeah, but he wasn't put in a glass box, and so right, he was no. he was permitted to continue to was, disrupt.
2: He was brought um, in against uh, against his will, I guess. As
3: was Saddam brought in against his will, yeah.
2: Was, it's, yeah, I guess that's right. Do they, what, how do the Iraqi people perceive the U.S. role in this? Do they see this as as, as uh, something that is occurring under Iraqi law, or do they see this as somehow a U.S.-controlled and led uh, tribunal?
3: Well, essentially there's no Iraqi people. There are factions of various Iraqis, some who support this court and others who don't, and, and some who don't support this court for legitimate concerns as to the fundamental fairness issues and and, and due process and to questioning whether or not it's appropriate for a Kurd judge who had allegedly numerous families victims of Saddam Hussein's alleged acts of genocide, of poisoning by gas, and of other acts of genocide against the Kurds, is it appropriate for this judge who's a relative of some of those victims to proceed over the trial? And so there are people who legitimately think that it is not fair. There are other Iraqis who think that this is fairness, that this is a restoration to the rule of law. And it's important to remember that before Saddam Hussein came into power, Iraq had a very rich legal tradition and very well-written procedural codes and substantive codes Um And it was only when Saddam came into power that he eventually rescinded them and subverted them by extrajudicial orders um, and edicts that were put in uh, to replace what were well-reasoned laws on the books.
1: Has that law been restored?
3: Yeah, actually it has. And a panel was put in uh, shortly after the occupation, first appointed by Americans and later when the Iraqis took over, to... Um, excise those anti-human rights uh, additions to the legal code that were put into place by the Saddam Hussein's regime.
1: Is there any real sympathy in Iraq for Saddam, for Saddam?
3: Absolutely, there's there's sympathy for him, and in segments of the population, particularly where he comes from. Um, but you know, some of it is not sympathy for him, necessarily, but it's sympathy for um, those who are being attacked, former Ba'ath Party members, some who were forced to be Ba'ath Party members, and others who were Ba'ath Party members who who profited from Saddam Hussein's regime, whether or not they supported him. And so now, you know, the day has come where they're no longer in power, and, and some are being um, they would allege persecuted, and we've seen instances in the Ministry of Interior where torture chambers were recently found. And when we see incidents like this or we hear about things in Abu Ghraib prison happening, um, it does bring some sympathy. And what Saddam Hussein is trying to play to now is to you know, pan-Arabism and to people in Europe as well to say that this is an unfair court, that this is... A court where you only see Iraqis in front of the camera, but that is essentially stage managed and directed by Americans who funded this court to the tune of 138 million dollars, uh, rather you, than Iraqis. You,
2: you've been, if I if I understand your your biography correctly, you've been both a, a prosecutor and a, and a defender in international tribunals uh, in, in other locations. Right, and. Uh, since a lot of our audiences are made up of lawyers and legal professionals I'm, I'm wondering what what's different about these kinds of proceedings for the lawyers involved what are the what are the special challenges uh or obstacles uh or even benefits in a, in a case such as this for the lawyers involved
3: well first it's you know disabusing yourself of the American system when you come into the system you know here be it the Iraqi tribunal, or be it the Rwandan or Yugoslav tribunal, or the new permanent international criminal court in the Hague, these are courts that are an amalgam of the civil law system and the common law system, so they are both adversarial systems and inquisitorial systems that allow hearsay in as the rule rather than the exception. They also, some of them, allow for victims to participate in the proceedings. The International Criminal Court in The Hague allows it, as does this court. I believe Article 22 of the Iraqi Tribunal allows for victims to bring suits against the accused as well. We haven't seen much of that yet, although there was some early testimony in the first couple of witnesses that they were pursuing that. Um, Another aspect is that in the appeals phase of these cases, both acquittals and convictions can be reversed there's no double jeopardy um in that respect um which is something that is true in the com- in the civil law system you see that in most uh, francophone countries um Plea bargaining is very rare. In the United States, 90% of cases are plea bargained and 10% go to trial. It's the converse in these international tribunals where maybe 10% are plea bargained and and 90% go to trial. There's also the issue of witness problems and witness anonymity, interference from political forces, um, and... In the case of the Iraqi tribunal, unlike the tribunals in The Hague and the U.N. tribunals in Africa, the burden of proof is different in that in the Iraqi tribunal, it is not proof beyond reasonable doubt, but it is proof to the satisfaction of the judges. Whatever that means will remain to be seen. <laughs>
2: Whatever that means. What, what about just I mean, in the, in the Saddam trial, the, the, the fear factor for the lawyers themselves? Does that play into this?
3: Yeah, even in some of the other tribunals, we've had defense attorneys um, who I was supervising in the Sierra Leone Tribunal uh, coming to me and saying, you know, we're, we do have fear for ourselves as well. Um, so this is not something new. What is new is that it's not just fear. This is, I mean, fear of imminent death. Um, and, and it's quite disturbing. And it begs the question, is a better model to have this trial out of Iraq, as is the case with the... ICTY, the court for the former Yugoslavia that's in the Hague, or the ICC, the Permanent International Criminal Court, also in the Hague, or the Rwandan Tribunal that is not in Rwanda but rather in Tanzania. Um, And there might be less harm and uh, more ability to uh, protect these lawyers and obtain defense witnesses who are going to be quite loath to um, support Saddam Hussein's case uh, in Iraq.
1: What kind of validity would a trial outside of Iraq have, though?
3: I think it w- it would have more validity, validity but less relevance, and, and that's the experience that I had in Rwanda as compared to my experience in Sierra Leone. In Rwanda, where I was prosecuting the tribunal, as I said earlier, was not held in Rwanda but held in Tanzania, and so it didn't have very much relevance or as much relevance as it should have to the Rwandan people who were not a part of it or, or and not watching it every day, whereas in Sierra Leone that war crimes tribunal there where I was defending, it was in the jurisdiction in which the crimes occurred. And so it was relevant to the people. Um, but in that instance, we had you know, battalions from the UN and, and Nigerian peacekeepers and tanks and artillery outside our courtroom every day that were protecting us quite well um, compared to a situation in Iraq where protection is, is really not, it seems possible at this point.
1: Has this court really been successful in restoring the rule of law to Iraq? Do you think uh, if it's successful in, in trying uh, Saddam, will the people begin to believe in the rule of law again?
3: Well, it depends on how well-reasoned a judgment we see. And, uh, you know, the the jury is still out on it right now. We're on day 13 and on trial one. This is a trial regarding I mean, involving uh, crimes against humanity, we also are going to see trials for genocide and perhaps war crimes, uh, genocide in, in involving the gassing of Kurds, war crimes involving um, his Saddam Hussein's uh, uh, aggression into Iran and into Kuwait, among other places. With when you look at the Milosevic case, where they put together a case that involved charges for Kosovo, for Bosnia, um, for war crimes, for genocide, for crimes against humanity. That trial has since taken about 400, and I think we're on 459 days as of today and going into our fifth year as of Monday. Um, so, you know, in, in that instance, has it to restore the rule of law in the areas of the former Yugoslavia, even though the trial was held outside. I think that things are much more stable in in the former Yugoslavia. Whether it will have the same effect in Iraq, it's pretty early on in the game on witness number 29 and day 13 to say how far we've gotten.
1: Simone, we're going to take a short break to hear from all the people who make coast-to-coast happen. When we come back, we'll have much more on the trial of Saddam Hussein and from our guest, Simone Montesivian.
0: We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our practice center sections. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com.
2: Welcome back to Coast to Coast. This is Bob Ambrogi,
1: And I'm Craig Williams. Our guest today is Simone Montesebian, the chief of the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime in New York City. She's also an expert on the trial of Saddam Hussein. Simone, before we wrap up with with your final thoughts, I wanted to ask one last question. Do you think that Saddam's been treated fairly so far? Hmm.
3: Well, to the extent that there are some questions about the procedural due process in this court, I think that any accused who appears before that tribunal has um, somewhat of a legitimate gripe about the legitimacy of the court and and their treatment. But has he, in particular, as opposed to the other seven accused um, been treated unfairly i don't I don't think so. I think a lot of his complaints that we've seen are really specious um, you know he was complaining early on that he was in, in trial uh, that he wasn't being allowed to swim um that he wasn't getting the food that he wanted that he wasn't allowed to get recreation as much as he wanted and you know we see this a lot in in the Milosevic case we see this a lot in the other war crimes tribunals there's a lot of malingering um, with respect to him complaining that he's not allowed to have the lawyers that he wants we have to remember that his lawyers you know stormed out they decided to disrupt the proceedings and leave. Um, So I think what's troubling to most people, if you talk to Human Rights Watch and others who are following international humanitarian law and have criticized this court and who are not sympathizers of, of Saddam Hussein by any means, they'll say that it's not fair that he will face the death penalty. They will say that it's not fair that there is not a burden of proof beyond reasonable doubt. And they will also say that it's not fair that a judge who is uh you know relative of victims who you know are part of the proceedings that are going to be adjudicated in this court presiding as the chief judge in this case is is not fair
2: well and as you pointed out earlier i mean many of the uh, the factors that we used to the U S legal system would consider elements of a fair trial just aren't here. I mean, the, the use of hearsay evidence, the, you know, witnesses testifying, uh, behind curtains and, and documents being put in without, uh, the tra- traditional kinds of authentication. But I wonder how, if you've been, uh, uh, paying close enough attention to tell us your, your assessment of, of, uh, of the evidence and the testimony so far, and and, and uh, where it's leading, and how, yes. you, how you how you characterize it so far.
3: Well, I think the first eleven of the thirteen days really dealt with cumulative witnesses giving the same kind of testimony. I.e., we were tortured, or our family member was tortured, detained, imprisoned, or killed, and. We never really heard the name Saddam Hussein, except in one or two instances where the judge said, well, do you know anything about these accused? Because in these types of proceedings, the judges in an inquisitorial tribunal are permitted to question the witnesses. And in a few instances, the witnesses said, well, he was the president, so he's responsible. But in the last two days, although we've also seen testimony by witnesses who are retracting their witness statements um, implicating Saddam Hussein, we did, however, see some documentary evidence that clearly links Saddam Hussein to these acts. You know, it's a two-part process. First, proving that these acts occurred, that crimes against humanity occurred, and what a crime against humanity is, as opposed to war crimes or genocide, which are also justiciable by this court. Crime Against Humanity is simply a widespread and systematic attack against a civilian population. So those initial witnesses were testifying to that. Now the most important part of the case will be was Saddam Hussein responsible for those attacks? And that really is all about command responsibility. And there's a three-pronged test to that. Was he a superior of those who committed these acts? Was he in effective control of those individuals? And did he encourage them or fail to sanction them? Or did he know or have reason to know what was going on and fail to take appropriate measures? Um, And we need to see more evidence on that. The documents we saw in the last couple of days showing that he signed death warrants um, is the beginning, but my understanding that there's also videotapes of him on the scene questioning people in due jail in 1982, um, shortly after the assassination attempt against him, which led to these reprisals resulting in crimes against humanity. So that has him on the scene. And I'm also told that there are documents that show that he promoted some of the worst offenders um, in the regime who abused, tortured, and killed some of these individuals. So we're waiting to see more evidence against Saddam Hussein. Quite a lot of evidence against his uh, half-brother, but not so much against him yet.
2: I read a commentary that suggested that uh, perhaps the most damaging evidence against Saddam has come from from his own mouth and in his portrayal of his his role in leading the country and his involvement in the affairs uh, of the country and and basically he described himself as a, as a micromanager in so many words.
3: Now, that's very common with these uh, dictators on trial. Uh, they have an ego and uh you know instead of minimizing their role they want to remember that they are still the president and that they were in control of all these things so that's a good point.
1: Yeah. Is they is the conviction of Saddam Hussein a foregone conclusion or is it really uh, possible that he could be found not guilty?
3: No, oh, I, I think it's essentially a foregone conclusion, yeah.
1: Does that lend itself to uh, any kind of criticism that uh, of the trial itself that it's a foregone conclusion, that this is just a sham to uh put on for the world to to show? Well,
3: some might argue that it shows that the prosecution brought charges against people who they had very strong evidence against, and that's a good thing. I mean, it can be looked upon that way as well. The interesting thing will remain to be seen regarding the uh, other accused, right? There's eight people on trial, Saddam Hussein being one of them. In Nuremberg, there were a couple of acquittals in the Yugoslav Tribunal. There have been five acquittals out of, I think, 37 trials in the Rwandan Tribunal. I think it's now maybe three acquittals out of twenty-one trials so it, uh, there's possibility for some of the lesser accused persons to be acquitted and it will be interesting to see if this is a tribunal where everybody's acquitted or whether there are some people who are not
1: if Saddam is actually uh, convicted will will he face I mean obviously he'll face the death penalty do you think that it's a foregone conclusion as well that, that he'll be hung yes I do Well. Um, Any final thoughts, Simone?
3: Well, I think it's important to remember why we should care about this trial and why it's important for Saddam Hussein to get a fair trial. And, you know, six years ago in, in the Nuremberg trials, Justice Jackson, in his opening statement, Justice Jackson being the chief prosecutor in the Nuremberg trial, reminded everybody that the record on which we Judge These defendants is the record on which history will judge us tomorrow and to pass them a poison chalice is to put one to our own lips as well. And so I think we should bend over backwards going out of our way to make sure that this is a fair trial, that this encourages peace, reconciliation, and rule of law over the rule of force in Iraq. And uh, we have a long way to go if that's to happen.
1: But it's a good start. Well, Simone, thanks very much for being our guest today. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambroji and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.